Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. To another episode of Inward Book Club, the show where every week, pretty much, we pick a book, talk about a book, normally a sales book, and we have lots to say about it. And this week we're on the second part of reading The Qualified Sales Leader, Proven Lessons from a Five-Time CRO, John McMahon, with a foreword by Dev Itichuria, who is the CEO of MongoDB, which we talked about last week as being pretty heavyweight. Mike, you've done another 100 pages this week. Have you got on? Yeah, it's a bit like I said last week. You know, it's a good book full of good stories. And he's sort of written the book like, um, like, a, like a, how would you say it? Like a, like a fly-on-the-wall documentary of him entering a sales team. And he's, you know, whether it's made up or not, who cares? But it's like a fly-on-the-wall documentary of these salespeople and what he told them and all the rest of it. And it's an interesting way to write the book, but I don't really like the way the book's written because it's not enough of a manual for me. However, the content of the book is absolutely excellent. Yeah, I mean, you're a man that doesn't learn well from metaphor and allegory, do you? Do you know what it is? I can't be bothered. You can't be bothered translating it? I just, I can't, I, I'm able to translate it. I can translate it. I often use it myself, but I just think, just give me the juice. Remember, you are the Prestron 3000, so you'll just, just give me their data. Yeah, exactly. And well, how often do we go through stuff when we're talking about you know, whatever it is, advertising or whatever, and you'll go, no, no, no. I said, whatever. How many leads have we got? Just give me the data. How many leads? And okay. I'm not knocking the book because the book is an excellent book. There's just no doubt about that. And this guy is clearly an absolute top guy. I tell you now, two-thirds of the way through it, buy the book. It's a good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a solid buy from Inward, isn't it? Buy this doubt. book. Read it. And it's rare that... If somebody rang me today and said, I'm going on holiday, what should I read? I'd say, that's all right, that one. It'll get you thinking. No doubt about it, yeah. We finished last week at page 102. We were just about to dive into page 103. And what he was talking about was how his stomach started to hurt when he was writing the proof of concept conversion ratios on his whiteboard as part of the story. And my first note I've made here on page 103 is I would love to do a poll. And maybe, Alex, this will be a good one to, to stick out on LinkedIn as a poll. I know the algorithm doesn't love them quite as much as it used to, probably because people like me moaned a lot. That notwithstanding, what I think we should point out as a poll is I'd love to know how many sales leaders truly know what their conversion ratios are from first engagement to next engagement whatever that funnel might be, I'd like to see a hundred sales leaders give us a poll response as to how accurately they do or don't know their conversion ratios. Well, so we'll, we'll stick that out. What do you reckon, Mike? I reckon it'd be low, but, but I think the IT market is so good at the moment, you don't need to. Correct. Everybody's hitting target, aren't they? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So as a result, nobody sat there thinking, what's my conversion ratio from demo to close? And you can always tell when they don't know, because they go, yeah, 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 it's about 50%, yeah. Well, is it about, or, or is it 37.6%? What is it? I'd say the one that, that always knows is Justin Mull. Oh, really? Absolutely razor. Properly on it, that guy. 
on it. Right. Because I've got a suspicion, I think less than 10%, one in 10 sales managers, one in 10 people, I believe, I reckon less than one in 10 people in sales leadership in the IT industry have an actual precise, and I mean precise understanding of this is what my conversion ratios are from stage X to stage Y, stage Y to stage Z, stage Z to stage A, and so on and so on. Because they don't need to know, like you say. I would suspect it's pretty low, but they don't need to know it. So it's, it's so unusual, I can remember the people that know it. Yeah. And then he gets onto page 104, he starts talking about... Can I also, just on that subject though, I think we're now with SaaS software, it sort of creates a proof of concept anyway, doesn't it? Because if you want to go buy Salesforce, you can use it free for a month. Can you still do that? I mean, you could when we bought it. Well, you it. could read it. But I'm sure that maybe that's a bad example because I don't know, but I'm sure there's plenty of applications which is 30-day free trial. And that actually, a 30-day free trial is a proof of concept. That's exactly what it is. Oh, he would say it's not a proof of concept. It's a proof of features and benefits, not a proof of... And he talks about this later on, the difference between trying the software and a proof of return on investment and understanding of how it solves the problem. Can we just cover the feature adventure benefit we're holding? I know we're going a little bit off track, but mate of mine is an absolute ultra gazillionaire of epic proportion. Yeah. And I was training with him on wherever it was, some point this week. And I was reading this book when he walked in. Right. And he said, because my kids are doing their thing first. He said, what are you doing? I said, reading this book. He said, oh, it's easy that, mate. Feature advantage benefit. I went, yeah, I'm not sure John McMahon would uh, agree with you, actually. He went, yeah, I've got half a million quid of Rolex watches and I bought a nine million pound house, so I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Fair comment. Yeah, yeah. But Fair comment. Yeah. Yeah. In his world. Yeah. In his world, he sells to hairy ass engineering types. Yeah. It works. I thought, top comment. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he talks on page 104 about, he just talks about the preposterous numbers that this sales team were expected to get. Love this bit. Love this bit. Love this bit. A win rate of only 25%. The rep needed 72 proof of concepts running each year to get 18 new clients. And he pulls up the calculator on his phone. That's an average of one and a half POCs per week, six POCs a month, 17 POCs per quarter. And what actually nobody had ever really thought about was then they go, how do the reps generate pipeline? The reps receive about 50% of their qualified leads that close from marketing the remainder of self-generated. John cynically and correctly then says, hard to believe they get 50% from marketing. Uh, and then he asks, what's the MQL to sales closed conversion ratio? 10%. Bet they didn't know that anyway. Since the reps receive half the lead from marketing, so they'd need to supply how many leads to each rep? And before they know it, they've calculated that they need to create 360 marketing qualified leads per rep to get that amount of POCs to get the number. And actually, what they realise is the number is absolutely impossible based on where they're currently at. Now, I, I've illustrated this because I see a lot of businesses like this. I see. Do you know what I put on here? I put, actually, if, if a lot of interviewees interrogated interviewers on real numbers, they shouldn't take the jobs. No. I don't think. Every now and then you get a candidate turn a job down and you go, what's wrong with the job? And it hasn't happened for a while, actually, where the candidate just goes, right, guy wants me to do a million and a half pounds worth of turnover. His average order value is £80,000. He converts at X percent. Therefore, he's expecting me to manage X amount of deals. It just don't work, mate. Don't work. But very rarely we hear that anymore. I think that's because the market's so good. I think in a tougher market, people will start looking at that. And, and a lot of the time, it just does not stack up. 
No, the, uh, well, it, and it goes the other way often with candidates, doesn't it? Where the targets don't stack up. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did two million last year. Really? What's your average order value? 20 grand. Right. Okay. 20 100 grand. sales. Nice. Two deals a week. Right. Nice. But it's very good. You see, that's what I mean about the book. It's an excellent point. Yes. But I wish it was a bit more, so do that. Yeah, okay. But it's an excellent point. But he's teaching. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. He's teaching, he's coaching. It's that, and that's what I think why this book has resonated so deeply with so many people that we talk to is he's coaching in the book. It's a coaching conversation, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And then he talks about creating steps and process in the buying process. You know, he takes them into this different place, doesn't he? About your reps aren't focused on understanding the problem that they solve for customers. A POC should only occur late in the process. Skipping steps leads to small deal sizes. Your sales team is only selling features and functions. You know, I was thinking about this in our own context. How often do you get an inquiry into our business where there's a line in it and there's a word they use where I immediately know the lead is crap, which is what are your rates? Oh, goodness. But it's such a giveaway, isn't it? And I would imagine there are lots of people in our industry who'll go, all oh, right, they want to know what our rates are. Oh, yeah, it's 15% or 20% or 25%. And actually, the moment I get that, it's always from a low-level decision maker who's not an economic buyer, not a coach, not an influencer. And actually, it's just a price-led purchase, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. It's the use of the word rates. What are your rates? And at the moment I see the word with the R, I just think, uh, not making money there. Completely agree. Because I just know it's not that they're not looking for somebody to solve a recruitment problem for them. They're just looking for somebody to send them some T's and C's at the lowest value. It's a weird one, really. And then he, he drops another little gem. Customers buy products based on the value they perceive they will receive, not the price. Couldn't agree more. You see, I do agree. I always decide because I don't completely agree. So before we kick this off, we were talking about cars, weren't we? Yes, Michael. Now, we just ordered, a, as it happens, coincidentally, at the same time you and I bought, were due to buy a car at a similar time, I bought my car on price. What, that BMW? Yeah. Or the Tesla we've just ordered? BMW and the Tesla. I found yes. functionality good enough, bought it on price. And I think if you looked at the compliance market, or if you looked at the pen testing market, or anything that's compliance-related, Tony Robbins would say, it's just got to be good enough, and then it's all down to price. And you and I both know some fairly wealthy people who have sold products that are just good enough and sold one price. Yeah, they've specifically carved out that part of the market. And I think it's quite right. We know one in particular who very, very carefully cultivated a product, designed a product specifically to be only just good enough for a specific compliance issue. His point was always, yeah. It's compliant though, Mike. He said, why, why would you need to be more than compliant? Yeah. What's the point of that? It was only just good enough. It was a tick in the box and he sold it miles cheaper than the big vendors and became a millionaire. And actually, I think if you go back through John McMahon, I can't remember where he worked. He worked somewhere like Blade Logic. Or he worked for a storage company. Is he worked for Veritas or something like that? I can't remember. He's, he's worked for loads, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think the storage market, I mean, not that we get have any involvement in it at all, but I bet the storage market is based on amount of storage per... I bet that's sold on price now. Nah, Mike, that market will have reinvented itself. It won't be called storage anymore. It will be called data cuddling or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
We're in the data cuddling market. I don't even know if the storage market still exists. Maybe it does. Who of course knows? it does. People still buy storage. I've bought some storage today. I bought my Apple six ninety nine a month, but I bought it on price. Oh no, I've bought dirty hard storage, two terabytes worth. But two terabytes worth. Do you know how much it costs? One hundred and sixty pounds, Michael. Means nothing to me. So, and again, he drops another little superstar bombshell here. The person buying for features and functions is low in the organisation, a small cog in the wheel. They don't have access to major funds. And then there's a line here, which I just think is killer, but it should have been highlighted or something. You get relegated to who you sound like. Yes, I like that as well. That is just boom for me, that. And to be clear, I don't think it sounds like in terms of your vocal tone. It's the communication method that you sound like, really. I think it goes bigger, doesn't it? You and I meet all sorts of different shapes and sizes of salespeople. Loads of them. Me, you, Charlotte. We pile through a lot of them in a week now. We talk to a lot of different types. And you realise very quickly that is, I think, one of the most true things that's ever been said. There are types. You meet some salespeople and you just go, hmm, enterprise. And you meet others and you just go, well, rough, hairy-arsed guy sells to engineers. Do you know what's interesting? There's a guy, I don't know if he listens to it, it's a guy called Nathan, he won't mind me mentioning his name. I placed him twice now, recently with a, just a proper enterprise company. And when I placed him about four or five years ago, I kept saying, that's going to get you into the enterprise market. And he said, Mike, what is enterprise? What does that mean? And we really struggled to define it. And when I placed him this time round, he goes, ah, you know we used to go on about enterprise? He said it took me three years to realise what it was. But if you think, because you know him, right? Yeah. He had the hallmark because somebody able to deal at an enterprise level wasn't selling there. And there's just something about them. What, quite what it is, I don't know. Yeah. But I know it when I hear it. Charlotte's dealing with a fella at the moment that sold wagons. He sold accessories for... Uh, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Charlotte and I were talking about it today. And she was explaining something that was said in a conversation. And I said that that's because of who he sells to and how he operates. Yes, I, I often find that people struggle to move from a B2C market into B2B because the communication style is so different. And I also think people become their customers. Some do, some don't. You know, look at a lot of the healthcare guys, a lot of the legal guys, they become their clients, don't they? Whereas actually a lot of the others, they just, they've just they got the ability to be a bit more mm, chameleonic to move between the different people to whom they sell, I think. Yes. The very good ones don't become their clients. The very good ones maintain their own authenticity. Yes, but it's interesting how many do end up becoming, they morph into being the customer. Now, some go native and overly empathise with the customers, don't they? Yes. But some just acquire the affectations of the way the customer acts in order to do better. There's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, and then we're into chapter 21, slow down to go fast. I thought this was a cracking chapter, this actually. Yeah, really good, this. Yeah, I, and, uh, yeah, completely. And he, he's talking about the noise, isn't he? He's talking, let's just, just take a breath for a minute and see what's going on. Yeah, what he's basically saying is slow down, start finding out what's really going on in the account, find out what's really happening in terms of pain, business issues. And he gives you this analogy, this example of a CIO that they talk to who says, people think I'm a firefighter, but actually I'm a forest ranger. Yes, I like that. He says, I overlook millions and millions of acres of land. My job is to think the long-term safety of our people, our intellectual property and potential threats that could affect the entire landmass. That means I just can't put out all the fires. Some fires will burn. Let them burn. I have to focus on preventing and extinguishing the biggest fires that threaten our company. 
And then he looked at, straight at me and said, Shannon, every company has fires, most of which they can live with. You want to sell high in a business, get above the noise. I thought that's really good. Yes. Because we all think, oh, you've got a little fire over there. But actually, it's just a fire that everybody's got fires that burn. We can't put all the fires out. We're a small business and we've got fires we can't put out. Completely agree. But there are some fires that are an existential threat, aren't they? They need to get put out. I like this bit as well. Many great reps share their intended sales process with the customer at the appropriate time in the scoping process. Yeah. I like that. I think that's a... Is that... Is that what happens in solution selling? Solution selling, yeah. Well, what you've got in this book is a little melding of solution selling, power-based selling, Jim Holden, mm. uh, a little bit of miller Hyman-y stuff, mm. and it's accumulated wisdom into one book, isn't it? But it, it's accumulated wisdom that kind of adds up. Mm. And then he, he talks about before and after. Uh, he, he talks about quantified pain. He says, there's no way to prove business value, so there's only small deals, not large deals. In simple terms, in the cost justification, the customer's gain must be significantly larger than the customer's pain. I'll tell you who's amazing at that. Mrs. G's very good at that. She's very good at creating like really clever spreadsheet ready reckoners to walk clients through return on investment thought processes. Very good at that. Kudos, Mrs. G. She might uh, hear the shout out to her when she listens to the show. Mrs. G wouldn't listen to this show if you dragged her into this room right now. <laughs> she just wouldn't. She just doesn't. So um, he says, from now on, I always stop saying POC and start saying POV, proof of value. Interesting, Matt. I like that. Completely. And then what he talks about, there's a phrase he uses here, which is, we'll also need to implicate the pain. Now that is classic spin selling. Yes. So if you ever read spin selling, which is a classic, you go situation problems, implications, needs. And actually what you're doing is, what he's saying they're doing is, they're going situation problems, POC. As opposed to, okay, you've got this problem, right? Okay, tell me more about the problem. Right, okay. And what does that problem mean to you? Well, it means that it's we could uh, lose money next year. And what does that mean? Well, uh, we, we'd, we'd lose shareholder value. And what does that mean? And that's what he's getting at, is that ability to get to the bottom of what does it really mean if that happens? He is getting to that. I don't think many people are good enough to do that or care enough. Well, I think it goes back to how many people need to. How many people are smart enough to go, right, okay, what does that mean to you? What are the implications of that? If that happens, what happens? Yeah, so this is, is an example, isn't it, about not having life cover? Yeah, I liked that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, yeah. Yeah, I liked that. I like a bit of life cover. And he talks about boxing up. That's chapter 23. You've just got to that where he gives the example of the life insurance sales guy. Exactly. What happens if you die? What happens if you die? What happens to your kids if you die? Yeah, exactly. Do your kids get to go to college if you die? Oh, no, they don't because you've not got the money because you're only young. All right. Okay. Before he knows it, he's bought some life cover. Da, 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 da. And then again, smart move, target customers. I mean, you and I spent a lot of time on this a long time ago, didn't we? It still stayed with me that you know I'm very bothered about that. Yeah, well, it- and he was saying about his uh, guy that sold life insurance. He said the guy's done the right research and therefore asked the right questions. He knows that he's got two kids. He knows that all those bits. And then he's pu- then he's pushing the buttons. I say this quite often about uh, people who, when they try and move markets. So if you sell legal software and you know the problems of the legal market, you know what questions to ask. Yeah, we know what questions to ask to get our clients going. Easy. Oh, yeah. How do you find sales recruitment? Sit back. Just sit back. Yeah. How's it going? Because you know they're all going to say it's a bloody nightmare. Yeah. 
How much did it cost? For, how much did it cost when you don't hire? You sit back. And actually, it's like you've hit them with a sledgehammer. But well, it's it's almost too good a question. That that question's too good. I find I, I go around the house to get to it. Don't worry about it. I find it that it's too clever. Right. So, what are the implications of uh, not having hired someone? Shut up, Johnny. Yeah. Is normally the answer. All right, mate. All right. All right. All right. I, I understand what you're on about. That's normally the answer. It's interesting because I met a chief exec a couple of weeks ago and I've got a, uh, an interesting relationship with the internal recruiter. And I said to him, what's my relationship like with the internal recruiter? He said, terrible. <laughs> I said, why? He said, because you recruited 12 people here last year and he recruited none. I said, yeah, well, thanks for paying me. He said, well, that's the problem though, isn't it? Because I've got to hire salespeople. He can't get them. You can. I've got to pay you. And every time I pay you, I look at him. And I said to him, I said, what's the implication of not? He said, just shut up, mate. Don't ask me the question. Yeah, stop it. Very clever, but stop it. Yeah, um, yeah I think it's cool. But it's a funny one with ideal customer profiles because we've placed a few people recently in companies that are not ideal. They're not ideal customers. But what's interesting is we get the money, but what you don't realise is when it's not in your ideal customer profile, it's just harder. it costs you money, energy, and pain elsewhere, I think. Yeah, very much so. Completely agree. I think the phrase we use is you go out of shape, don't you? Of course you do, yeah. You lose shape. You lose shape, you li- and, it, and it's draining. You do work that's then not in recruitment. You're doing research work for which there's no synergy because it's not an ideal client. Well, it's not scalable either, is it? You know, this guy, when you look at where he's worked, he's worked for companies that have scaled very quickly. And he scaled them quickly because they go after the same kind of customer over and over and over again with the same marketing message over and over and over and over again. Mm. And so they're not running around from one value proposition to another. And then he's talking about negative consequences, use cases. Good. All good gear. Mm, completely right. And now on to chapter 25, propensity to buy and sales complexity. What did you make of this one? Uh, I like the fact that he's qualifying out as an ideal customer criteria. He's explaining to them, just get out of potential opportunities where the complexity is high. That's exactly what I wrote here. <laughs> yeah. I summarise each chapter and I've put exactly that. Which is really neat, really. It's the same reason why I think a lot of enterprise software vendors don't play in the UK NHS. How do you reckon, Mike, it's so complex? It's complex. The sales cycle's 18 months, and there's always some sales manager who's got to justify to a sales leader, who's got to justify to somebody in America why there's a guy in the UK on £120,000 base who hasn't sold anything for 14 months, which is always a tough conversation, isn't it? Uh, Because at some point somebody says, hey, the guy's not sold anything for 14 months. Yeah, well, it's kind of not how it works over in the UK in healthcare. Well, in America in healthcare, you can do it in three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you know it, you're churning salespeople. So why have the complexity? So often I speak to sales leaders. I did a lot of it when we were doing analytics and they'd say, nah, I'm not interested in that. It takes too long to win the deals. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But it's smart. It's just getting out of this. Get out of there. Why? Why would you do it? And they're saying in this example, financial services, the deal's too complex. Take too long. So they're just saying, right, just rule it out. Stop trying to win business in financial services. I like chapter 26. Did you? I mean, what chapter 26 is about, you like it to a lawyer about leading the witness. Yeah, going back down that route of what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you do that? What are the implications of that? Yes, particularly when you know the answer to the question. Yeah, they're leading questions, aren't they? They're leading questions to take you into a certain space. Yeah, and I like this point here on 139. Time kills all deals without urgency. Johnny, I, I underlined the same bit. <laughs> That's funny. If you haven't established urgency, then as time moves on, the customer believes they can continue to operate without your solution. I mean, that's just like he drops little gem bombs, this guy, doesn't he? Uh, well, page 143. Go on. He has said, 
To beat time ramp, recruit A players. Ah. To increase average sales productivity, recruit A players. To lower rep attrition, recruit A players. Recruiting defines you. But here's the funny thing, isn't it? You know, I wrote a book about recruiting. A few people have read it. I think about three, me mum. You haven't. Uh, no, I didn't read it. Uh, <laughs> right. But I've always caveated this, which is people don't realise the extent to which it really does define them in a sales leadership role. And people just sort of end up in a sales leadership job and then they just sort of get on with it. Yeah, yeah, I've got to hire people. They never really think about it. You see, I, I folded this page over actually to talk to him about this. Because I think, I, I, I do believe that recruiting a place is a good thing to do. Of course, you know, you can't dispute that that's a good thing to do. However, there are some companies out there that can't, or, and there are some companies out there who I think have been smarter than that. I think they've got their sales process so geared up, they can hire bloody anybody. Correct. And I think that's a better option. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're Leeds Rhinos and you're second from the bottom of the Super League table and you're desperate for players, who have you signed this week? Zach Hardacre. Where's Zach Hardacre from? Well, he's a Wigan reject with mental health problems. He was due to play on Friday, but he collapsed with what looks like some nasty illness. So you can't hire A players. We can't hire A-grade players right now. So what do you do? Well, at some point, the new coach has got to come in and think, well, I can't hire A-grade players, so I'm going to play my youth team. And I'm going to make them so well drilled and so fit that we'll knock a few teams over. But he's not going to hire A grade players because he's not at the top of the table. And if I'm a top player, I don't want to play for that club, do I? Correct. Not unless you throw monumental, monumental money at me. But really, even then, it's a short life and a short career. Do I really want to go and play for some bottom of the table club just because they're offering me more money? And if I do, I'm probably not the right kind of individual for that club anyway. Completely agree. And people think in sales, oh, well, I can hire A-grade players. You can't. A-grade players won't work for you. This won't work for you. Don't matter how much you pay. Correct. They won't work for you. Not everybody can hire an A-grade player. Yeah. And it's easy for our author. Who's worked for A-grade companies. Who's worked for A-grade companies, who has worked with A-grade VC and A-grade brands to hire A-grade players. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Completely agree. But it's not easy for little reseller Y selling RPA, little UiPath partner Y in Jeedle with 15 employees or something. It's not that easy for them. They can't hire A players. Nope, they can't. They need to have a better system. But what he does say, actually, is he says, skill set match to target accounts. I think that's absolutely spot on, actually. Yeah. I think... um, you know, you mentioned it earlier about quite often uh, salespeople reflect the clients into which they sell. I actually think the client should be cognizant of to whom they sell and making sure they hire somebody that meets that target audience. You don't play a prop forward at full back. Yeah, and you shouldn't hire some guy that's sold to hedge fund managers to sell into healthcare. No, hire a healthcare guy who knows the market. Hire a former nurse or whatever they hire. Who knows the audience. Mm -hmm. And I do, I think it's a really interesting one. He he talks about what to look for in a recruit. So he goes, A-leaders, and I said this last week, A-leaders are secure in their ability as leaders and only want the best people. B-leaders are insecure in their abilities and afraid that if they recruit an A, the A may jeopardise their position as a leader. I kind of get that. I just think shit people hire shit people and good people hire good people. And I think smart people hire the right people. Yes. There is a man that we've done loads of business with 
whose name I'm obviously not going to say because of what I'm about to say about him. And he has always said, listen, Mike, I haven't quite got as much budget as a top company, so just I'll hire one that's a bit broken and see if I can work him out. Yeah. He's had a very, very good career. He runs a very good company. He, he like, hires the house that needs doing up. Yeah, and why not? We've done that before, haven't we? Fixed a few. Yeah. He talks about recruiting character, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. What do you think to this? I think, what I thought at the bottom is, I've said this is fine, but very few people are good enough or have the confidence or have the bulletproofness to actually be able to do that. I think it's a little bit trite, actually. Well, so let's look at it the way. So let's say I, I joined SAP you know, 20 years ago when SAP were nothing in the UK. I sold more than anybody else, and now I'm the MD, and no one I've hired has ever failed for me. And I go, yeah, I'm going to hire a cleaner. And the boss goes, yeah, all right, you're a top guy. And I hire the cleaner, and the cleaner doesn't work out. You can get away with that. It's fine. You can get away with it because you've been so successful for so long. However, let's say you just joined SAP. You've been there a year, and actually all eyes are looking at you, and you go, I'm going to hire the cleaner. You should not do that. We know a lady, you know, who hired a tennis pro. Right. To work for an ERP company, and she was the rock of that ERP company, an absolute golden woman. Yeah. And she could afford to get away with making a mistake. But actually, how many people can afford to get away with a 100-gram mistake now? Not many, because the basic salaries are so high, so not many people can actually do that. No, because the entry-level basic salary is now at a point where you can't really have a project higher. Completely. It's very rare. Uh, you know, it's made me just realise it's very rare that we, where we speak to a client where you think, be a nice project for that client, that where they take somebody on and, and everybody knows as part of the agreement, this is a project. I'll polish you up. You'll work hard because I'm going to polish you up. We see very little of that now. Completely. So page 150. He goes, these are my top five positive characteristics. Intelligence, PhD, coachability and adaptability, integrity, curiosity. Adam Spur, who I do a load of recruitment for, he recruits on intelligence, coachability and adaptability and integrity. That's all he recruits for. Interestingly, he's ex-PTC. Correct. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You know that I'm a big advocate of intelligence and skill. Yeah. Actual pound for pound skills to do the job. What skills does this person have? Does that person have the skill, not the CV, not the P60s, not the worked for this company or worked for that company? Does the guy have the skills to do the job? Or lady, Mm. do they have the skills? And I think that the word, when you start talking about the word skill, I think a lot of people blank out. A lot of people blank out because they don't know how to find that. Yes, they blank out. They don't even understand what the word skills means. Because what's interesting is about your guy that you were talking about a bit ago that sold trucks or whatever it was, he has absolutely smashed one interview. Yeah. And has got a second interview forthcoming. Got the skills. He's been completely, well, he's been completely bombed at another. And the person that completely bombed him, not very experienced as an interviewer. Yeah. The person that's seen the good of him in... And I know she listens to this show. is one of the best interviewers I've ever met. But because she's a brilliantly good interviewer, she's worked it out. He's got the skill. She's worked out intelligence, PhD, and skill. Yeah. Whereas the other one that doesn't interview many, because actually she's just a sales manager and I don't mean that in a bad way. She spends all of her time selling and not much time interviewing. Yeah. He's completely passed her by. Didn't like him at all. But she was wrong. Fascinating, I think. Uh, yeah. And then this sort of coachability and adaptability. If you're not coachable, you won't learn. 
again, I, I just think that's a little bit yesterday. I don't think there's a lot of coaching going on in some of these jobs. I think that the Faustian pact has changed. Completely, completely agree with you. It's changed because I pay you more, so I want results. If you don't get results, I'm going to fire you. Yeah. I'm, Can I have some coaching? No. I'm paying you £120,000 basic salary. Come see me with my number next week. Yeah, don't do it, I'll fire you. Can I have some coaching? No. Not really. If I'm paying you, you know, 70k, which is nuts, same as I think in GP. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, I've probably got to coach you a little bit. But a lot of these salaries now are so nuts. People are looking at them going, what, he wants help? He's on 120k base. Yeah, the candidates have made it, the whole market's made a run for its own back, really. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, long may it continue. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then I, I like the fact that he pans the concept of hiring CVs. Thank you. I'll thank him when he comes on the show. Yes, quite. Then he gives a little analogy of the golf coach who asks you to think about 10 different swing thoughts at once, which is a really good leadership thing, actually, because you can't think about 10 swing thoughts at once. I struggle to think about one. And it's interestingly, he gives an example here of a golf coach that helps somebody change their game. And he says, actually, he talks about just getting them to change their grip and then leaving them with that for several weeks until they come back to the next bit. Quite right. And he said, that's what you do with a salesperson. And it is. It's so true. What did you make of his uh, of his comparison? He said, being single is like being a sales rep. Loved that. Being a manager. Yeah, I thought that. Be- I being a manager that. is like having kids. Your world's changed. Yeah. I-, I thought that's absolute. Well, you and I both know as managers and leaders, you have bottoms to... Uh, no, it's unfair to say you have bottoms to wipe. You've just got to look after people. You've got to look after your kids. You've got to look after, you know, the people that work for you. The book stops with you, doesn't it? It's like, it's like if you, like, so my daughter's now one of my daughters. I'm going to go take, we've got a boat. I'm going to go out on the boat. It's only an inflatable thing. He says, don't get carried away. <laughs> but her safety, the book stops with me, doesn't it? Full stop. Of course it does. With me. You and I have both sat in meeting rooms before and looked at each other and went, this feels more like parenting than it does management. Yeah. And this guy's right. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what else did we did? Uh, uh, that's well, right. then 29, actually, 167, he's talking about finding champions. He said, in other words, just because someone has a positional authority in a company, that may not mean they have organisational influence to access the economic buyer. Now, it's a real mix of different sales strategies there, isn't it? Well, he's, what I found, 166 to the page 200 where we're stopping today, is we're effectively into Jim Holden's power-based selling now. Yeah, yeah. But with a bit of... Um, a little bit of Miller-Hyman. Miller-Hyman, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm going to skip through this because it actually is quite a technical part of the book. It's good, though, I think. Oh, really good, yeah? It's bang on. Yeah. Why would somebody be a champion in the account? Really good. I couldn't recommend this more. It's a bit out of kilter with the rest of the book, which is quite light. But these next few pages, you've got to properly read them. Gets a little bit sales manually, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I like that, obviously, as you know. Yeah, and about educating your champion, really like that. I like this, testing the champion. Yeah. That's really cool. And it and it gets into, actually, some very practical stuff. What activities could we ask them to perform? Arrange a demo to a different department. Facilitate an introduction to another stakeholder. Share any product evaluation documents. I mean, he's getting very specific. You say it's not a manual. I think it is. These next few pages, they are manual. They are manual. How do you know you have a champion? It's talking about working out how you know you've got a champion. Difference between a coach and a champion. You know, it's very, very good, I think, that. Yeah. And there's like there's a table on, on page 195. Brilliant. Yeah, I like that. The table on page number 195, he talks about the difference between a coach and a champion. 
Absolutely brilliant. Champion gives you access to people on the power chart, gives you access to the economic buyer, will co-author the decision criteria, will provide internal metrics for cost justification, will help control the decision. But that's really cool. And that kind of takes us to page 200. It certainly does, yeah. And the end of another show leading us into uh, the final stages. Yeah, I mean, summary thus far, it is, there's no doubt. You know, I whinged about it a little bit, but only very lightly. I think it's an excellent book. One of the best ones we've done. One of the first ones we've done in a while where I'm really looking forward to getting the author on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, well, part of that is because we've not absolutely panned his book and he might turn up. Who was the one where we <laughs> panned it and the guy didn't turn up? I can't remember. Lee Saltz. We absolutely leathered Lee Saltz, didn't we? Okay, I remember. I remember there being an awful book and the guy didn't turn up. It was probably that. Well, it was a pamphlet to sell sales training on it and we were daft enough to cover it. I can't remember. I think we actually didn't finish the book, did we? I just can't remember. I can't remember. Literally, I think I learned less than nothing out of that one. But this one is good. It's got me thinking a little bit. Yeah, if you were new to sales management, right, you've just been promoted to, oh, right, which book should I read? That's a bloody good start. Yeah, no offence to Keith Rosen. It nails Keith Rosen's books on sales leadership. What was his book? sales leadership I, th- I seem to remember we quite liked that as well yeah but this guy's credibility level is just so high it's nuts high isn't it it's got a superb track record and he's not peddling sales training which makes it all the more credible well you can tell the difference can't you he's not leaving some behind he's giving you everything there isn't a, a link somewhere in the PDF saying and if you want to buy a course on how to fight, discover the fox in the account click here correct he's just writing his book and selling copies of it. And I'm sure he'll end up on the lecture circuit or whatever, doing a TED talk or something for loads of money. But at that, we will see you next week for the final part of this discussion before we actually have the author on the show. What's he called? John McMahon. Thank you for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.